This morning we find ourselves returning to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. We'll actually be in Matthew chapter 7. So if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use one of the ones in the pew rack just in front of you. In fact, if you come here today and don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of those red Bibles with you as a gift from us. We prefer that you have those in your homes. I want to reiterate again how much I appreciate those who have preached the Word over these last few months. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying very much getting back into this wonderful sermon, but I really appreciate as well the good it is for the church to hear other men preach in the text that we are, because I think that's good for your soul. I think that's good for the soul of the church overall to, again, put emphasis on the text and the message more than the messenger and yet there is certainly an importance to that as well. It needs to be in the hands of trusted men. I'm glad for the guys who have done that so faithfully, especially John and Stephen. I do think it's good, though, since it's been a few weeks, for us to recap briefly um, kind of the heart intent and kind of where we've come from in this sermon. Again, this is a, a single long discourse by Christ to those who had ears to hear. The sermon itself has been debated as to is its, its intended purpose. For many, they saw this as something that related to the conduct of future kingdom, particularly being in Matthew. Matthew is very much about the kingdom of heaven. But it is that, not just tension, but it is that reality of both the kingdom now and the kingdom not yet. The fact that when Christ comes in, he has brought with him the kingdom because he is the king of that kingdom. But there's also a not yet aspect to that kingdom. There is what's to come. And you see a lot of that at play in Matthew. Now, with this sermon, we have him saying very much, what is the standard of living for those in the kingdom? Then the question arises, is that conduct for those who will be in the kingdom? Basically, because it's such a lofty standard, is this basically for only those who will eventually be Christians and will live in heaven? Is this what heaven looks like, basically? Or is this really expected of us now? Because this is really, really intense. Well, actually, I believe it is the latter that it is the really, really intense standard now. However, it also is coupled with it, what you see in the very first part of this sermon in chapter 5, that it is strongly related to this idea that Jesus Christ is expounding on the law. He's expounding on the nature of the law. Because again, many had misinterpreted what the purpose of the law was. They saw that keeping the law was a possible way of achieving justification. But if I kept the law, remember the rich young ruler, if I've done all these things, I've done all these things, then Christ calls him on the heart. Okay, go and then sell everything you've got. Mm. Went away sad. And what does Christ do at the first part of this message? He gives what they know to be very general, standard, even Ten Commandment type laws. He says, you say this about conduct, but I say this about the heart. You say murder, I say hatred, that's murder. You say adultery, I say lust in your heart, that's adultery. Christ is interpreting them, not reinterpreting, not giving a new interpretation of the law, but the very intent of the law at its very inception. So basically you have this sermon that says, here is the standard by which God expects his people to live. It is an impossible standard for you to be able to achieve on your own. 
And yet the very one who is delivering this message is the only one who is possibly capable of keeping every aspect of the law, not just in its action and its expression, but even in its motivation and its intention, its very heart. So Christ never grumbles. Christ never argues with his parents, much less disobeys them or dishonors them. Christ never hates anyone, although he certainly had cause to do so, at least on a human level. So basically, coupled with this Sermon on the Mount, you have this really intense expectation and standard of living in his kingdom, but you also have behind it the one who perfectly fulfills every jot and tittle of this law that he is expounding upon and preaching about. And therefore, we end up knowing that Christ is our righteousness before God. Christ is the one who perfectly lived the law that God rightly expects those who would be in his presence to live. We cannot expect a God who is perfect and perfectly loving to somehow dismiss his holiness all in the name of what we would consider more of an earthly love to tolerate sin in his presence. That would mean he ceases to be God. So while he is loving, he is perfectly just. So he will satisfy all of his own requirements, all of his own promises through, in a sense, himself, the person of Jesus Christ. So then we see that for Christians, because Christ is in us, the hope of glory, having the Holy Spirit, this Sermon on the Mount is actually an expectation of what we are to strive to live by and for. Not because it will lead us to salvation, but because we have the one who has perfectly fulfilled it living in us. So it is a real moral standard for us as the church. But for those of you who don't know Christ, I hope you feel the weight of impossibility when we preach through the Sermon on the Mount. That I can't do that. So even today when we talk about not judging, maybe in your heart and your gut there's going to be something, I can't forgive this person for what they did. I hope you feel the impossibility of the requirement, the standard, even the law behind it. Because by God's grace, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will break you on that tablet of the law and that you will realize that if Christ doesn't help me, no one can. So the Sermon on the Mount is intensely weighty. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was pastor of Westminster Chapel, the first half of the 20th century, well, middle part to latter middle middle part of the 20th century, born in 1899. He says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, There is nothing that so utterly condemns us as the Sermon on the Mount. There is nothing so utterly impossible, so terrifying, and so full of doctrine. Indeed, I do not hesitate to say that were it not that I knew of the doctrine of justification by faith only, I would never look at the Sermon on the Mount because it is a sermon before which we all stand completely naked and altogether without hope. So there is no way to approach this Sermon on the Mount and just kind of lightly come to it as if Jesus is just giving some really good ethical standards. I mean, either the weight of it falls on the crossbeams of the cross that Christ bore on your behalf, or it's fallen on the back of your neck. But its weight's falling. It's coming down. So we get back to these standards that we start in here in chapter 7. We'll understand even more of that weight as it relates to our relationships. 
what we see here is that Christ emphasizes these familiar standards to the Jews. They were familiar because, at least by the law, they understand them, understood them to be standards, but they had diminished their meaning by just merely adhering to the action, not the heart. They, Christ delivers this as more of a circumspect understanding that God is indeed sovereign. God is watching, and He demands obedience. So therefore, it helps us see that Christ only is sufficient. In chapter 5, Christ lays out, and you can look at it in your Bibles if you would, just to, just to glance at it and get familiar again, even with the, the pages or the text. As He begins this, he, he really outlines really what it means to be really truly happy, really truly blessed as a person. And that is someone who pleases God in heart, mind, soul, and strength in everything that you are. That these beatitudes would be something that would drive you to really the essence of happiness, which is pleasing the one who has made you. He shows a general understanding that the purpose of people is to show the glory of God, but only through Christ, because Christ is the fulfiller of the law. He didn't come to nullify it, but to actually fulfill it. He then paints a picture to help the people understand God's righteous requirements, specifically that God looks upon the heart, its intent and motivation, even more so than just the action. Then going on in chapter 6, after taking that foundation, he really begins to deal more with the aspect of private heart dealings related to worship, the more vertical relationship. So something that we should be doing as an act of worship, that yes, it might help people, but it's something that meant to be as an act of worship to him. If you do the vertical, hoping that the people around you horizontal are seeing you and therefore glorifying you, he's showing you that that's an insufficient standard. In fact, it indeed is sin. So in chapter 7, he begins to outline the righteous requirements that he has for his kingdom people when it comes to the more horizontal relationships. Our dealings with those in the church, in the community of faith, and also those in the geographic community that we live in. You know, we see this pattern again and again in the scriptures, don't we? Love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, the vertical and the horizontal. We see this over and over, even when Christ was challenged with the great commandment, he quotes out of Deuteronomy 6. These challenges happen in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. Also, Peter, in 2 Peter 1, in his list of virtues that are to be added to the Christian life, basically the first four or so deal with the more horizontal or vertical aspects of the relationship that we have with God, but then how that relationship translates to the horizontal. Those are the last three that Peter mentions in that list of 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. This pattern is again and again. But here's our problem is we, we tend to divorce these two things. We tend to divorce the devotional from the missional. We tend to, devo- to divorce the more private from the interpersonal. We need to get over that. We have to understand that these are two parts of a whole. They're both sides of one coin. That to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is intensely loving of other people. And basically, if you don't love others and don't show any love for others, it is actually reflective of the fact that you aren't loving God with all of who you are. If somehow our church program or our activity in church can somehow see a disconnect between a deep, disciplined, devotional life and a more energized, evangelistic push... There's something misunderstanding in our understanding of what it means to treasure Christ. That's why I still love 
you know, we were mentioning this all the time. I love our passion statement. It's, it's kind of a, it's like a fence for me. It's a, it's a discipline. It's a reminder. Because I know that I will glorify God the most when His Son is most treasured in my heart. And I know that the expression of treasuring Christ above all else is going to be reaching others. That is, that is spoken of throughout the Scriptures. You've got vertical. You've got horizontal. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on and says this. He says, we are undergoing a process of judgment the whole time because we are being prepared for the final judgment. He's speaking of the Christian life. And as Christian people, we should do all things with that idea uppermost in my mind, our minds, remembering that we shall have to render an account. Now, he's not saying to live in such a way that's in fear of losing your salvation, but at the same time, he is saying we are to live understanding that we are to give an account, and basically our life will either bear evidence that we know him or it won't. Okay? So, with that in mind, with the fact that God is always watching, let's go ahead and look at our text. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or... How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Okay, let's go ahead and pray as we head into this text. Our God, we pray that you would help us to rightly understand this text, both the things that we are to guard against and the things that are actually encouraged here. Our prayer, Lord, is that we would understand that as we move into more of a view of the horizontal relationships that we have with others, the church and the lost world, that, God, we would understand how that is not as if we have achieved anything devotionally, but that it is expressing our interdependence upon you, our radical submission to who you are, that we cling to you, that we love you, that we treasure you in the most private places so that when it becomes more public, it is rather seamless. God, that's our heart's cry for individually, but also corporately as a church, that we would more seamlessly put on display the treasure that is the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. pray that this would help us do that. It would help root out sin, even in our church, in our own homes. That, God, it may even expose for some that they do have a hypercritical spirit and it is indicative of self-righteousness and that that must be rooted out. For that to remain pervasive is just as damning as any other overt sin. God, help us to discern rightly. And may your text fall on us as it should. And Lord, may we then find our hope in Christ alone. We thank you even in advance now to the text itself that you bore the judgment of God on our behalf. Holy Spirit, thanks for the resurrection that he is alive and that burden that was bore is no more has to fall on men. So forgive us for ever acting like we somehow can judge others when our judgment and wrath has been relieved. 
Lord, for the lost in the room, for those who are unbelievers. Whether they realize it or not, I pray that you would expose to them, even through this text, where they stand before your pending judgment. And may they find relief before this day is done. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So clearly, right off the bat, he says, don't judge. I have a very simple two-point outline. Don't judge, do discern. Plain and simple. Don't judge is verses 1 through 5. Verse 6 is do discern. We are called and charged, actually, to do that. So let's talk about what's meant by judgment here. Just even in verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. I think it's important for us to understand what it is and what it isn't. Well, first of all, crime is the word here. It's a decision, a function or effect for or against. It could mean avenge, condemned, or condemnation. The kind of judgment that's assessed here or addressed here is the condemning of others based on their behavior or even their position in life from the perspective of one who takes a superior position of authority. Specifically, it's the condemnation of the individual even more so than the individual's actions. Now, I'm not being crass here. It could be as extreme as whether you say it with your lips or kind of mean it in your heart, go to hell. It could either be that extreme or it could be much more minuscule, but it basically wouldn't hurt your feelings if they were really damaged in the process. So basically, I'll put it like this. You're driving this week, somebody zooms past you on crossover on college, and in your heart, you're just hoping to goodness that they get a big-time ticket. Now, you're not wishing them to hell, but you're on the path of hoping harm upon them. Now, part of you would say, well, that's just justice. I want justice. To protect others. Now, that is where it gets messy because people do need to slow down. You people need to slow down. We do want safety. We do want care. Absolutely. There is justice involved here. Certainly then in uh, when it comes to even just our justice system, we want others and the innocent to be protected. And when people pervasively... So there is a, there is a way to even... I'm not being political here, but there is a way to even believe politically in even capital punishment, and not violate this principle. But it's different, though, when you look at the vile crimes that someone else has committed and think in your heart they deserve hell and hope they go there. That is forbidden here. So pack that in the back of your mind as you listen. Its reasons could be driven by racism, Bitterness because of being wronged, unforgiveness or intolerance. But it is essentially condemning a person, not just their actions. So keep that in mind. Now let's talk about very briefly what it's not. I think this is very important for us to understand, especially considering that we live in an age of tolerance and overly applied hate speech, increasingly so, where the hate is essentially to speak anything against anyone at any time to call what they do as wrong. Certainly there is true hate speech, like that related to racism. But there's also an overly diagnosed, rapidly therapeutic aspect to our culture that says that tolerance of all creeds, all religions, all sexual orientation is to be embraced and defended regardless if it stomps on the rights of others who believe otherwise. That's the kind of culture we live in. We've confused race and lifestyle. We've confused freedom and totalitarianism. We've confused even democracy with socialism. And we're told that we basically, what we can and we cannot say, increasingly. 
we could easily dive into a diatribe against certain politicians and certain policies. But the authority of our Savior doesn't allow us to find our hopes or fears to rise and fall on the policies of politicians. We have a king that's just as risen today as he was last week when we celebrated. He's on his throne. He establishes rulers, and oftentimes he gives countries the rulers that they're asking for, but he is in control regardless. Leaves questions. But there's no question as to his control. So we rest. We don't become necessarily pacifists, but we rest. John 7.24 says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So there is a right judgment. So it's not ruling out all judgment altogether. It's not talking about discernment. In fact, even in this very text, verse 6, what does it say? Do not give dogs what is holy. That means you're assessing that some people are dogs and pigs. There's discernment. There's an assessment that's to be made. We're to assess ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11 deals with this when Paul is addressing the abuses in the church at Corinth. Even leading to the Lord's table so that corporately he says, look, you're, you're parting here and you're ignoring each other's needs. You need to judge yourselves. He even says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. He even says, he doesn't say they've lost their salvation, but there are temporal judgments for not judging ourselves rightly. He goes on to say, even some have died, but if we judged ourselves truly, and he doesn't mean just individually, he's talking as we do ourselves corporately, we would not be judged temporally. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might, may not be condemned along with the world. Basically, God loves His people too much to remain in a pattern of sinful living and the truly redeemed receive the discipline of the Lord, even if it takes a long time, and they repent. That's what we call not just the preservation of the saints, but also the perseverance of the saints. True believers come back at some point. It, it could even be deathbed. It's, it gets confusing in some people's lives and lifestyles. But there really is nothing in the Scripture that says, you know what, as long as you made a right decision and prayed the right prayer, regardless of how you live the rest of your life, you're good, you're in. There is constant and regular assessment, not to earn your salvation and not to even keep it, but it is to examine it by its fruit and to see if it's true. In fact, I believe that the rest of chapter 7 in Matthew will give you an idea of what this is all about because he gets into assessing the fruit of false prophets and discerning if there's false disciples and discerning a tree and its fruit. And I think that examination begins here. So there's a constant... Here's how we treat the horizontal community around us, both the church and the world, but it's also then reflective of what the evidence is in our own hearts of whether or not there's a relationship here. And that even begins here, I believe, in the judgment of other people. Christ Himself even says in Matthew 18 that we are to actually judge others, even the church, the brothers. He speaks, he's the first one that introduces church discipline. The first person to use the Greek word ekklesia in the New Testament is actually Jesus. And the teaching is out of Matthew 18. And it's about church discipline. It's about if a brother sins and you approach him in his sin privately and he continues to refuse to repent of his sin that's become known, you're to bring that and tell it to the church and then treat him like a tax collector or a Gentile. Basically, 
excommunicate him. Not to punish him, but if a person is unrepentant, what are you doing? You're lovingly saying, brother, we can't let you lie to yourself thinking that you're a believer when you're acting like you're not. This isn't about perfectionism. We're talking about gross, public, known sin. And when it's unrepented of, when called upon by loving peers, and that's refused, that's rejected, it's not just Pauline theology, it's Christ. And he says, as if they're different, let's not even get into red and black letters. If you have a red letter Bible, that's good, but they're no more weighty than the black ones, just so you know. Okay, get off that for a minute. But Christ makes plain. We're to love each other enough to judge each other with the right kind of judgment. So when it says, do not judge others unless you be judged, he is not talking about the absence of all discernment, assessment, and right judgment within the church. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about purifying the witness of the church. There is a judgment that is forbidden, but there's a right assessment and self-judgment that we must absolutely embrace. So when he says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then what he says after that really gives shape to this kind of judgment. So what he says is, don't pronounce judgment on another. Don't individually condemn them one way or the other. You can assess behavior and still love a person. Now, I know we like to say, hate the sin, love the sinner. And I think for the most part that works. That's right. But, you know, there there still are a few verses that are really troublesome where Christ even says that he does hate a sinner in these situations. It doesn't mean all necessarily in that way, but we're also not God to make that assessment or judgment. We're to turn the other cheek. We're to be slapped and still turn the other cheek. We are to receive uh, degradation. We're to receive even martyrdom if that be the case. But we are absolutely to give right assessment and judgment. So... He says you're not to condemn as if you're in a position of authority. You can't condemn anyone to hell. No more than you could rightly pronounce a loved one to heaven if there was never any evidence of their conversion just because they're old. You are not in a position of judgment. If you do, from a position of authority, condemn or even damn another person based on what they do, who they are, their race, or some action that they've done against you, you will be judged by that same standard. Basically, you've become the standard, so you then will be judged according to you. Who measures up? Who measures up? Now, this could go one of two ways. Either that judgment is by others. Now, I think there's lots of credence to this. Because what he gets to in the next couple of weeks, we'll get to, actually on Mother's Day, we'll get to the golden rule. I was going to actually preach a a wonderful Mother's Day message. I've never done that since we've been here in eight years, almost eight years. Never preached a Mother's Day only message. I was going to do that. And then I looked at the text. It was golden rule. I was like, what does our mothers always teach us? Golden rule. So I got to preach it. What does he say? Treat others as you would have them treat you. So I think there absolutely is a temporal horizontal aspect to this If you judge other people like this, they're going to judge you right back like this. I think there is something to that. But I also think there is something to the potential temporal nature of the judgment we'll experience from God. Basically, His discipline could happen to true believers in this realm where basically there's real loss. I mean, what does Paul say in his warning to the Corinthian church? You're sick. 
please, you know there's no health, wealth, gospel here. There are plenty of people who are sick. We got stomach stuff going through my house this week. It's fun. You know, so it is well can be something really tragic or can be, you know, God, please keep those germs at bay, you know, Lysol bubbles, whatever you hope happens. But whatever the case is, whatever the trial is, whatever the difficulty is, do we think it's always just because of sin? Because that's God's judgment? Well, we know that ultimately that God has judged Christ on behalf of sinners. But there is a judgment that's also intermingled with discipline where he loves his children enough that, yes, there are times that he absolutely causes our sickness. There are times that God disciplines his children when they are going so far south in the witness of him to others, I believe that he has even taken them out like of life. But that's not my call. That's not even my call to say, I know what he did there. No, Pat Robertson, no. It's not our call. It's God's. We can assess the, the evidence and the fruit, but we need to bear testimony that God alone has the authority. And love people who do damnable things without ever embracing their activity or their actions or their lifestyles. We have to be discerning. So I think there's a temporal aspect to this where believers can be judged like this, but I also think that it could bear evidence of judgment falling on the heads of those who are truly without Christ. Meaning, it may be this may be your way of hearing the gospel and the law falling on you rightly for the first time. Here's what I mean. You realize you have an overly critical spirit. You are constantly condemning and judging other people. And maybe the weight ends up falling on you to realize that, look, if you keep this up, you're bearing evidence that you believe you're actually good enough to be in God's presence. Because in a sense, you're kind of acting like God. So you must be so righteous to be able to make God-like statements and have God-like feelings toward other people that you can actually stand before God and be just okay. So then I ask you, then examine the text and ask yourself, who of all people ever written about in the Scriptures has He said, I'm pleased? It's Christ. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And righteousness... Even if you go there, the only time you read it, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's something that's credited to people because of faith. It's not inherent. It's not just built in. It's credited. Faith. Why? How? In God. In what God will provide. In that God will satisfy His requirements on your behalf. So even for the Old Testament people, they believed in the future God was going to provide that through this coming promised one, this offspring through Abraham. So they had faith in a future hope. We know Christ. We have faith in one who's come, has been raised from the dead. Only those who have Christ then will be able to stand before God and say, my only good standing before you is this one who took the judgment I deserve because my righteousness is filthy. So I think the judgment he's talking about here actually on some level could hit all of us in this room. You could feel the sting of receiving that judgment back just from another person because your standard's coming back on you. It could be that God is judging you, disciplining you as a child of God, not punishing you because you're a sinner, but disciplining you because you're in sin to bring you back to humility and submission to Him. But it also could be a warning of actual future and final judgment for you who are lost and unbelieving because you realize that you are acting like God. We should take this very, very seriously. The heart of this criticism is self-righteousness. That's what he's saying, right? But let's be honest. Most of us are not going to see this right off the bat 
Because we don't necessarily walk around just going, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, I don't like the way you drive, you're going to hell. None of us, few of us are that extreme. But let me mention a few things that just might get you on that road. You're nitpicky. You nag all the time. You point out other people's faults all the time, never dealing with your own. In the most interpersonal relationships you have, the weight is not given to love and support and encouragement. It's actually given to tearing down. You are judging on a standard that God warns against here. Gossips. They're looking for ways to be critical. Doctrine hunters. Zombies came to mind, sorry, but doctrine hunters. I mean, these are people that are just looking for any slip-up so that they can call you a heretic. Others of us call that Twitter. Lifestyle fanatics. Yes, there's a fanatical side of this. Like, if your hymn length is not here, you're going to hell. Too much makeup. It's going to get hot. There are lifestyle fanatics. They take extra biblical standards and put a biblical weight of conviction upon it and then judge people. That's the slippery slope that we all can get on at any time. Early on in our marriage, I was critical of the music that Jan listened to. I was critical of so many things because I was the good boy. I didn't even realize that I believed that Jan got a greater prize than I got until well into our marriage and we started to really deal with difficulty. I can't believe I even felt that way. God exposed that with almost a violence. That was a discipline. It was a judgment discipline. I've tasted this. I mean, I'm grateful. I mean, Jan tells me all the time. I mean, she loves the, this graced out version of me so much more. But she stayed with me. She loved me even through that. I dare her all the time to encourage me. An impossible person to encourage. But she's just undaunted. She'll do it. We are all on a slippery slope. My kids love Little House on the Prairie, so I thought of Mrs. Olson. She's on the slippery slope. You know, Lloyd-Jones goes on. I read a lot of Lloyd-Jones this week, if you can't tell. He points out this pharisaical type of expression that basically comes in when people also give an opinion without even knowing all the facts. Slippery slope. Oh, I know. Yeah. Hadn't even read. Doesn't even know what's going on. Just inserts their opinion and is kind of definitive about that opinion. Slippery slope to judgment. It's dangerous. Because ultimately we become the standard of what's right. That is self-righteousness. So let's keep in mind, a warning isn't a warning without potential consequences. And those consequences are very real, as mentioned here. We can also understand here that pride kills perspective. This self-righteousness is pride. Verses 3 and 4. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Pride kills perspective. When you look at yourself, you don't see yourself well. What does James tell us? 
It is arrogance. It is pride to go to the word like a mirror. It shows me exactly who I am, but it's arrogance to read the word, not do it. Because basically it's like going to a mirror and not even giving a rip about what you just saw and changing anything about it. I'm good. Wow, that's really neat. I'm good though. It's just a complete ignore. It's self-righteous pride. It's all it is. But to say all it is, if that persists, that is damning. It will condemn us if we don't reject self-righteousness, be broken of our pride, fall at the feet of Christ who did, who actually has the keys of the kingdom and actually does indeed bear the, all the weight and all the actuality of judging people, rightly so, and say, Lord, if it be not you, I'm dead. Save me. Pride, though, gets all this out of whack. We struggle with this. Justice, vengeance. We're at the heart really of pretty vengeful people. I mean, isn't it odd that the people who want to be so nice to trees that they get almost murderous when it comes to if we ever bring up statements that have to do with protecting the unborn and basically they defend their rights with a venom of a racist. It doesn't make sense. They're supposed to be pacifists. Why are they so mad? Don't we struggle with this though in our movies? Look, I gotta admit, I mean, I gotta tell you, I didn't grow up watching John Wayne just hoping he was gonna do justice. I'm the bad guy to get it. I love Batman. I do. I, I kind of can't stand the fact that he never uses guns because there's just some people that just flat out, there's some of those guys that just flat out deserve it. We have this guy in us, this gal in us that wants vengeance. Instead of just justice. We should pursue and seek justice. But we leave all of the vengeance to the Lord. Because it's going to be His name vindicated one day, not ours. We have to deal with this when we deal with particular sins of other people. I think it's probably where this starts to hit the church. Especially the Western church. Especially the Western church and those of us who grew up through maybe particularly 70s and 80s in the church where, ever, where, where there was so much God and country mix and republicanism mixed in with being a conservative evangelical. And, and we just naturally put weights on certain sins. Look, I admit, I do believe all sin is the same in God's eyes in the sense that it all produces death. But there certainly are sins that produce more temporal consequences than others, no doubt. You know, I mean... You're probably not going to be executed if you tell a white lie. But before God and His righteousness, you tell a lifetime of white lies bearing evidence you're not a believer and not a truth teller, you will go to the same place as the murderer. But I think we struggle with this in the church. We automatically damn some certain types of lifestyle people to hell because we just think they're just too far gone. A few years ago, I was prayer walking in the Wilson Park neighborhood and came upon a woman, invited her to church. She was out in the front working in her yard. And I mean, right off the bat, she put down, she obviously knew I was kind of a church person because I was, I was walking and I was, and I just said, Hey, can I, do you mind if I invite you to come to church? I don't remember if it was before an Easter service or whatever, but she, she came really boldly toward me. Like she, she wasn't just, you know, taking off the work gloves and I mean, she was going on 
I think she like turned her rake around. I thought, what's going to happen? So I mean, she just blurted out. She says, I'm a lesbian. Are you going to let me in your church? She was very, I mean, very aggressive. And, you know, I mean, I think I gave right answers, but I said, well, first of all, absolutely. I would love for you to come to our church. You will be absolutely welcome. No one's going to ask you what you do or don't do. We would love to invite you in and come and listen to the word preached. We'd love to, to care for you as much as we can and all that. But then I clarified. I said, however, if you're asking me, can you join our church? And I won't get the words exactly right, so I don't want to misrepresent it. But essentially, I told her, I said, in essence, only believers who are willing to turn away from sin and turn to Christ can be part of the local church. So in the same way that I would turn away someone who says, you know what, I'm not giving up adultery or I'm not giving up pornography or I'm not giving up whatever, not looking for perfection because we fail and we have, we're broken people, but we're redeemed. But people who pervasively don't want to repent... It's wrong to bring them into the fellowship of the church because what are you doing? You're inviting them in. It's like, here, join. We're glad that you're coming. Please tithe. Now we're going to discipline you because you're in public sin. How nice. Nor is it right because it emboldens their idea that they're actually in Christ. Church membership should be something that helps clarify for a person that they are part of his kingdom. So I did kind of clarify that. And I think in that moment, God was helping me to do both things that are mentioned in our text, and especially when we get to it in just a minute, to say... There is absolutely an openness that we, we just throw out the gospel to all and we are very inviting and should be winsome. But we don't want people to wrongly think that they can embrace sin of whatever type pervasively without repentance and be in good standing before God. That's wrong. That requires discernment on our part. So we can't cut people off at the knees, so to speak, just because they're in a particular sin. We should be inviting and share the gospel with them. And at the same time, just like we should with all people, we should make sure we're calling them to repentance. So what do we do? Verse 5 says, perform eye surgery. You hypocrite, first take out the log. Then you'll see clearly the speck in your brother's eye. What does he say? Basically he says, look, diagnose yourself according to the word. See the sin in your own life. It's certainly not to be missed that it's a log as opposed to a speck. You can see the hypocrisy just in the image that Christ painted with his words. But it also shows the height of our hypocrisy because just even the literal size of it, it should be a lot more obvious to us than it is. He says, what are you doing, you hypocrite? See, a hypocrite is simply this. It's the word used for actor or a pretender. Even if everybody else sees it, an actor, a pretender, they're playing a part. You know, maybe you've said along the way, look, I don't want to go to church. It's just full of hypocrites. And then those of us in the church say, absolutely, it's just we're kind of aware of it. So why don't you come on in and join us? We, we all are hypocritical to some degree. You know, there's a sense, there's a measure of hypocrisy for me standing in the pulpit every week because there's a sense that I'm always preaching just beyond myself. And yet trying to be broken and humble when I step up here and even in the study, in preparing to go, I have judgment in me. God, root it out. Root it out. I want to speak it plainly. But this is a person who really is actually believing they can fool people. 
look and examine yourself according to God's Word to see if there's a log in your eye. So remove it. Confess your prejudice, your vengeful attitude, your intolerance, your lack of faith in sharing the gospel with those who you think won't listen. That's pride. Don't you realize it's judgment to think that someone won't hear the gospel and so therefore not tell them? Who are you to say who won't hear? That's a work of only the Spirit of God. It is judgment not to witness. So if I didn't catch you with the gossip or the doctrine hunter thing, you just got looped in with a lack of evangelism. Because we all have people in our family. I mean, go back to high school. There are people in high school. They're never come to Jesus. And then you get on Facebook 20 years later and go, I can't believe they know Jesus. It is judging not to proclaim. It's not your call. Humble yourself before the Lord. That happens through prayer, the saturation and meditation on Scripture, the fellowship with other believers. And when I say fellowship, that means it's not just accountability of guarding each other against what's wrong, but actually then promoting what's right. So it's more like gospel friendships, relationships. So be in the church and actually then be in such relationships that you can help guard each other and even pick out each other's specs. Because that's what's interesting here. He doesn't say, don't deal with the speck. He just says, get the log out first. Because guess what? It's unloving to have that gone and it's false humility to get your own logs out but then never actually deal with the speck in another person's eye. He still wants you to get the speck out. He just wants you to do it from humility. From trusting that Christ alone can heal this and solve this and redeem this. Practice Philippians 2, 1 through 5. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's to the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interest, but to the interests of others. It is not in your own self-interest to help deal with another person's sin. That's dangerous. But it's loving. If the log's out, because why? You're doing it then from a standpoint of, you want them restored to Jesus. It's not about you making yourself look better than another person, because look at that speck. Look at that speck. That's trying to say you're puffed up to remove the log and then humbly go to a brother that does have sin that you notice. That is to help restore them to Christ. And there is nothing more loving than that. So the last thing that he tells us then is to discern. If there was a linchpin, this is it. Because Judgment doesn't mean the absence of all judgment. It just means the presence of right judgment and the dismissal of self-righteous judgment. He says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Pearls. What's holy? You see these parallels? What's holy? Pearls. Well, I think Matthew himself gives us some indication of this. In Matthew 13... 45 and 46, he compares the kingdom of heaven to pearls. Pearl of great price. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven 
the gospel message. All these things are intertwined. The truth of who Christ is. It is prized. It's to be treasured. And then if you backed up into chapter 10, verse 14 of Matthew, it says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen, as he's given a charge for the disciples, he says, If they will not listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. We start to see a little bit of the tension in the mix here, which is basically the gospel is very precious. It's not for you to decide who's going to receive it and who's not. That is not in your purview. It is God who elects. It's God who then draws and wins and woos and secures and pers- and, 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 and per, uh, perseveres forever. God does all that. But He's charged men to be... We're to be full of words and just scattering out the seed of the gospel to all of mankind everywhere. But He's not saying to do it without discernment. So here's a couple of takes on this. The dogs and the swine. Well, first of all, um, it's not dogs as if um, like a, a sweet thing. Dogs in the Middle East would have been scavengers. Swine would have been impure. In fact, these would have been things that the Pharisees and Sadducees in particular, when it came to animals, would have taken particular exception to if he had ever directly said, this is the way you're being. So I think it is at least inclusive of the Pharisees and Sadducees to say, because what what does Christ do in his ministry? They demand answers. They demand signs. And many times, you know what? Christ is silent. Now, I'm not Christ, so I can't discern well enough a person's heart to go, do they deserve the gospel today? That's judgment. Should I? T- are they going to turn this around and use this to attack me? Christ was perfect in his estimations of every heart of every person that he ever talked with. And with some, he remained silent and just gave like one or two word answers to, and others he gave no answers to. And others, especially those who would have ears to hear, they went on. We can then look at Acts. And what do you see? You see very much the same pattern and yet more risk. Because sometimes Paul would listen to the help from elder-type guys and, and leave a place because there were people coming that were going to kill him. But then towards the end, they said, please don't go back to Jerusalem. The Ephesian elders, please, on your way back to Rome, however this thing is going to navigate itself, please don't go back there. They're only going to do this. And Paul then refuses that. And he says, no, I'm going. I mean, let me just summarize it like this. Certainly, I do agree with what the text says and what the other, what the more explicit texts say um, that we've already referenced. And that is this, that when the gospel is being completely and totally rejected, and I, I think in particular when it's being rejected on a regular basis, basically there's no reception of you as a person nor of your gospel. So basically, it's possible for the gospel to be rejected, but for people to still kind of receive you, I don't think it's time to dust off the feet yet. But if they're rejecting you and the gospel, and I don't mean you as far as getting your feelings hurt, I just mean as long as there's a connection with you relationally, there's opportunity that maybe, and not because of you, but just that's God's way of saying there's still an opening here. Maybe they will listen. You keep telling. But when there's a complete and utter and total rejection, they will not receive instruction of the word nor the messenger. I do believe it's appropriate to move on. Why? Because a person that realizes it's wrong for me to judge also realizes that whether or not a person is saved doesn't depend on me and my particular witness. 
You trust and hope that the gospel words go out, but faith cometh by hearing, not by the messenger. It comes by hearing the word of Christ. So speak your word. Maybe that seed will be planted later on. But you don't have to have the stick to that sometimes can have an anger behind it or an arrogance behind it to say, it's got to be me or it's no one. If it's been completely and utterly rejected, I think it's time to dust the feet off and move somewhere else. But for most of us, let's be honest, that's not really our problem, is it? Our problem is not that we're just so loquacious in sharing our faith with everyone, that we're just being rejected left and right. No, our problem is actually that we're just, we anticipate rejection or we anticipate refusal based on what? How a person lives, maybe something they've done in the past. Guys, that is in the vein of judgment. We should confess that as sin, humble ourselves before the Lord, ask His forgiveness for, in a sense, judging people by not sharing our faith. Because I think another part of this is, you don't cast pearls before dogs. You don't do this before swine or these treasure, these holy things. These things cannot be defiled. They've got to have their place. I think there's also, too, at a little side angle of just kind of knowing who you're dealing with. Knowing your audience. I'm not talking about contextualization and all that as much as just saying, look, it's appropriate to know how to speak to certain people in certain contexts, but it's still the same speak. It's the gospel. But you need to be wise. You need to be discerning. But I think the greater charge here is that, yes, we do need to be discerning. We do need to make sure that we are speaking the gospel itself. And there are times that we will be rejected And we need to move on trusting that God alone is the judge. Maybe they will turn at some point, but we feel led to go on somewhere else and keep preaching and teaching until someone listens. We do this in missions. We pray for that person of peace. You have to keep going until someone listens. And you know what? If they let you in the door or the tent of the hut, you're going to keep coming in. Even if they say, I'm not ready to believe that yet, but they keep saying, come on in and have some rice, you're going to keep going in. You're going to keep going in until they said no, because eventually the lost world is going to reject whoever brings the word as well as the word itself. So from their angle, they will associate you with the gospel. And when they reject that in total, even though with broken heart, I think you have to move on because you're actually in that moment trusting that it's only your word, Lord, that changes people's lives. It's not me. So I hope kind of the the collective view of all this will help us to deal more circumspectly. Have you noticed all the language of sight and all this? Basically, we need perspective. The gospel alone will help us in this. The gospel will identify the gospel, not just the word itself, but I mean the gospel as in God alone is holy and perfect and true, that man is sinful, that Christ came to ransom sinful man and to bring him to God, that he did actually live perfectly, he actually died unjustly on his part, but for our sake, and then rose from the dead. And that actually then, you can believe all that and still not be a Christian. You still have to respond in repentance and faith, turning from the world that you think is so beautiful and lovely, but now it's become ugly because Jesus is more beautiful, and you turn and follow Him. The gospel is the only thing that will give us a right perspective of this. It will help us see our log. It will help us see clearly the person's speck. It will help us then see that we are casting these treasures and these pearls before those who are actually receiving it or those who are rejecting it and don't want that. And we just simply have to dust our feet off and move on to proclaim the gospel. But we can't do it before we've opened our mouths. 
So there's repentance for all of us here in the text today. So with that, remember this. To judge others is to place yourself in authority over them. The essence of this is pride and self-righteousness. God will humble the proud and He will bring judgment on those who condemn others, either finally for those who don't know Him or temporally in discipline for believers to humble them once again before Him. Judging others shows a lack of understanding of the gospel because we realize Christ alone is judged, not us. There's a slippery slope. The nitpicking, the nagging, the gossip, the, the always looking for something critical so that we can be made something more of. That's anti-gospel. So, therefore, treasure the gospel. Proclaim it. Remind each other in the church. Never presume that others won't listen. That is judgment. But if they completely and utterly reject you, don't hesitate to go on and lovingly share it with others. Look, if you treasure Christ enough, you're not going to miss that discernment. And plus, hopefully, the doctrinal floor that you fall on still says, even if I don't do it well, how well I witness is not dependent on whether or not a person makes it to heaven. The gospel is what changes people's lives. Christ is able, even when we're not. So with all this, remember there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness if you're a judgmental person. There's forgiveness if in all this you realize what the log is in your eye. Ask forgiveness. There's forgiveness if you've been judging other people by not witnessing to them because you just think it's too hard or because you're just, you just know somehow that they're going to reject this gospel. There's forgiveness for you today in the very thing that will make you the right kind of person to help another person in the church get the speck out. To even risk it and be bitten on the hand by a dog or by, by a pig and get messy in their lives, only to be rejected. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because you know what? One day there is a final judgment. Hebrews tells us it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. So proclaim that gospel. It'll be good for your soul. And by God's grace, it might even stave off that final judgment for another. Let's pray. God, we pray for discernment now. We pray for wisdom now. We pray that you would help us to discern before your word where we have sin, that this word maybe has gotten in between and exposed critical spirits even in this room. Maybe even there are relationships that need to be restored in this room because someone has just seen a person with a critical eye again and again and again, and they need to ask forgiveness for restoration. God, all of us, to some degree, need to ask your forgiveness for, in a sense, judging other people by not boldly sharing our faith. It's disbelief that your gospel changes lives, and it's, and it's judgment to assume that someone's going to reject it. So God, forgive us. Corporately. Forgive us for thinking that living in the most liberal part of town, that somehow, that not reaching every single home in this Wilson Park neighborhood is going to meet with rejection. Oh, certainly with some, we'll have to shake the dust off our feet. But there will be some that you have primed, you've made ready. God, I pray that on UBC, it would never be said that we will have that judgment come back on us because we just assumed that college students and our neighbors would not respond. Therefore, we didn't go. So God, restore us now. By your grace, we pray. Amen.